Welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. We are back here with an additional episode from the Stateline Goat and Sheep Conference that was held in Cherokee, Oklahoma uh, in November. And so I invited a couple of speakers back. We've heard in a previous episode a little bit about the Prairie Project. And in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit more about just specifically the goats in the project. I find it just so fascinating. It's just a different line of livestock production. And so I thought it's just something different from what we've talked about before. I've invited Cooper Sherrill back. Cooper, tell people who you are and and where you're from. Yep. So I'm a research and extension uh, assistant for the Natural Resources Department working for the Prairie Project, uh, which we talked about in the last episode. One of the main things that I do for this job is to to take care of the goat herd uh, that we're doing all this research on uh, and the livestock guardian dogs that come with that come with having the goats. Okay, and Laura Goodman is back with us. She's our extension range specialist. And um, so, Laura, tell us kind of where you're from. Yeah. What you do at OSU. I work at the university. I'm the range extension specialist and then I teach um, teach some classes in the natural resource ecology management department and uh, do a little bit of research. So Cooper, you just did an excellent presentation at the conference, um, talked about the details of the goat. So tell us a little bit about the nutritional need for goats in a general sense and how the patch burn grazing uh, lends itself to be work very well with that. Sure. So like in the previous episode, uh, Laura talked about the, the patch burn grazing in the research pastures that we're using, we're burning twice a year, typically late February, early March, and then again in typically the first week of August. And so is that the same patch or is it a different patch? So it, it's a different patch. So there's okay. in these pastures, uh, there are 120 acres and there's six different patches. So okay. they're about 20 acres a piece. Okay. And we move, we move those around. Okay. All right. Um, that makes a lot more sense. For example, the patches that we're going to burn this spring, it'll be another three years until they get burnt again. All right, so March and August. Typically, uh, you know, there is there is a little bit of a fluctuation, but it's it's typically early March and in early August is when we do it, and that matches up really well with the nutritional demands of these adult does that we have out on the research project. We have them set up to start kidding uh, about the second week of April. And the highest point of nutritional demand for these goats is the last 30 days before they kid. So we've got the burn that we did early part of March, and we're starting to green up already. But with with that fire and the green up, very quickly we meet the nutritional demands of these goats. And in most cases, we're far out exceeding it for pretty much the whole time that they have their babies on them. Uh, which is typically about a three-month period. After they wean their kids, uh, there's typically two or three weeks of where the available nutrition out in the pasture isn't the greatest Mm because it's going to be about the first week of August. You think about your typical prairie in August, it's not great. And And we just weaned babies off of these mamas, so they need a boost. Okay. Uh, And it works really well because we were already burning that first part of August, uh, you know, give that a few weeks and a nice rain and you've got better than you could ever pour out of a sack. 
in, so, in front of these goats. So after you burn, how long is it? How many days? I mean, you're think, you're talking like, okay, this was just, we burned and it was right there for the goats. So how long? Tell me what mm -hmm. it, how long before you see green up? Or maybe the goats see it and notice it before even we do. So a lot of it's going to depend. Uh, well, one, if we're burning in late, late February, it's not greening up yet. Of course, yes. Uh, so some of it's going to depend on just general the soil temperature and your ambient air temperature but and also uh, the soil moisture mm -hmm. you know we could burn in the first week of april but if it's been dry all winter and we haven't got a rain yet then you're not going to green up as fast so a lot of it's just going to be precipitation based okay. uh, on that we can see uh, a lot of times when we're doing our our growing season burns that that early august uh, we typically haven't been that dry the last several years, and you can go out two to three days later, and you're starting to see okay. grass. That's like cool. An inch tall already, two or three days later. Yeah, of course, all of it, you know, it depends on, like you said, those factors. Sure. If we've had a rain in yeah. August, which happens or doesn't happen. And sometimes right? it doesn't. And sometimes it doesn't. We okay. still got the benefit of the fire, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, for the, the purpose of this stuff. A lot of it is brush control. So we still got the benefit of it. Uh, we just may not have got the nutritional benefit of, mm -hmm. of that fire. If it does rain, it's going to green up, and it will be the first thing to be green in the spring. Mm -hmm. So it's not a lost cause if it doesn't oh, rain. Yeah. But we do almost, I mean, it's it's actually more rare that we wouldn't get rain in, in April and May. Those are our, you know, April, May, June, those are like, that's when we're almost always going to get rain. Yeah. And, and then we have, we kind of have another bump typically in August, September, it's more likely that we'll get rain at those times of the year than it is that we won't. The timing of the burns is really ideal to, to maximize. There will likely be a lot of plant growth happening um, at those times of the year, so. I think that that works so well in that system. So I'm thinking about, you know, cattle producers were moving into kind of the supplemental feeding time. So what did you do, Cooper, during that winter time period when maybe their the nutritional quality wasn't as high. Did you do some supplemental feeding or anything yep, like that? Yeah, we, we did. So just just like uh, your cattle producer, prairie in the dormant season is really low quality, mm -hmm. and it's not going to meet the protein requirements of most cattle or the goats. So we do supplemental feed where the goats are. There's a set of pins at that common intersection that we talked about in the other in the other podcast, and we feed the cattle and the goats in that set of pins. But within the bigger pin, if I could paint the picture here, mm -hmm. within the bigger pin, uh, I've got a small what I call a feed pin, and it's really easy to train the goats to go in there and eat because they're going to eat one. We're not feeding them near as much. Typically, it's about a third of a pound of a 17 percent okay. uh, concentrate. Um, until the last 30 days and then we bump them up to about a half but they eat really fast and they're going to finish and if you don't have an area that you could keep them away from the cattle feed then they're going to go jump in the trough with the cows okay and there's a lot of potential issues with that with injury uh plus we put the feed out there for the cows not the goats the goats mm -hmm. got theirs uh, yes so it's it's something to take into consideration but with a few panels and a little walk through gate it's, it's not hard to overcome that. And you said the goats train very well. How many days did it take you to train them? About two, maybe three. Here in a couple of weeks when we start our supplemental feeding for this winter, I, I really don't expect to have to retrain them. Yeah. They're, they're going to know. They'll recognize what's going on. Yeah. 
Cool. They're really smart. <laughs> and so what about hay, Cooper? Hay is a big deal. So with the way that, that we're doing the patch burning, we talked about the rest that those patches receive that haven't been grazed in a while. But what that also is, is standing hay crop. So we do not uh, supplement with any hay unless it is really nasty cold or there's mm -hmm. snow or ice and they just can't get it. Okay. Um, this last year, everybody knows we had a really bad winter storm. We put out one bale of alfalfa in each of these three pastures, and that was the only roughage supplementation that they got. Uh, but we just did that for easy energy. Everybody knows how cold it was. They needed some help with that. But hay's expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, That's why I, I was a little bit jokingly earlier. Like, <laughs> it, it, we assume that it's a needed, necessary, obvious thing in our operations, but it is way more expensive than mm -hmm. people realize, even if you're putting it up yourself. I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying is if we think about what's out there, mm -hmm. there's roughage out there. If we're providing, you know, the protein so that the gut can do its thing, mm -hmm. we wouldn't necessarily need that as much. Now, you guys had 10 heifers in each group. Mm -hmm. And so did you do any hay feeding with them or nope? nope. nope. Not, see, that goes to show you there. Zero, worked fine. Zero hay. And they yeah. were fine. Oh, yeah. Perfectly fine. Okay. <laughs> Rolling fat. <laughs> <laughs> and the replacement heifers, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the breeding, kidding um, situation. Tell us about, um, well, let's first talk about what breed. What breed of goats? So mo most of the does uh, that we have in our research herd are Spanish. Uh, and then we have about 80% of them are Spanish. And the other 20% are Boer crosses they're mainly boer with a little bit of spanish mixed in with them and currently the bucks that we're using are kiko bucks those are three meat breeds that can really complement each other in a variety of ways the typical gestation period on a goat is five months this next monday actually is when we'll open the gates up and we'll start the breeding season for the 2022 kid crop okay um and that's just as simple as it would be for a cattle producer. Open the gate and watch your happy buck yeah. run off. <laughs> With all his ladies. Yep. So you said something interesting, you know, during the presentation, um, talking about getting those does cycling. And so tell us a little bit of how you manage that that buck. Just like with most cattle producers, it's it's pretty conducive to have a really tight, it's not a calving, calving window, I guess you call it a kidding window. A kidding window. That makes it easier on whoever's taking care of the goats and from all standpoints of animal husbandry and then subsequent marketing, if they're really close in age. It just makes things easier. So what we did, our bucks don't stay near the does when they're not breeding. We use what's called the buck effect. And basically it's just when those does haven't been in contact with this nasty, stinking, rutting buck that's making these <laughs> wonderful noises, it, it stimulates something inside them that say, hey, we need to cycle. Okay. Um, and these does are cycling already, but with that sudden influx of the buck effect, mm -hmm. uh, they'll really tighten up their estrus cycles. Uh, this last year, 84% of our kids were born in 12 days, and all but one of the does had kitted within three weeks. So that's that's excellent. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. It was nice. It, it was a, a fast-paced two weeks, but it was fun, and I learned a lot. Yeah. So. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> From a management standpoint, a yeah. lot going on. Yeah. 
And then in how many months are they weaned? Most people are going to are going to wean their kids around 90 days. Okay. Our, ours, we went to 100 just because logistics. Mm-hmm. Plus, the mothers were, were in plenty good of shape that I wasn't worried about another 10 days on them. I guess you could look at it. We got free pounds out of them. Typically, it's 90 days or three months is when people will wean their kids. Okay. From this set of does, 174% live kidding. Uh, percentage and then when we get to our weaning percentage that was 150 percent which is is really quite good with Mm -hmm. the way that this is set up uh because these goats are out on pasture you know they're in the 120 acre pastures and they have access to all of it no kidding shelters they do it out in the field just like just like you would expect your cattle to you lost some kids which you know with cattle producers you lose some calves that's realistic right yep do you feel like it was a predator thing was it a just realistic i I think yeah that's you're just gonna lose some kids it happens and that's that's why that that goats and and sheep for that matter that's why they have more than one Mm -hmm. typically is because that thing does it does happen yeah when they're spread out and i think i mentioned in the earlier podcast goats are really gregarious they want to be with each other and a lot of these first-time mothers this is their first time to do this and if they were on one end of the pasture and their body says, we're kidding, but mm-hmm. the rest of the herd keeps going, that makes her nervous. Yeah. So she's either gonna decide to stay there with her kids or she may go try to rejoin the herd, which is fine if she can go back and find the babies, mm-hmm. which most of them did. Yeah, I don't know if we mentioned that they were a lot of them were new mothers, right? Yeah, 80, 80% okay. of this were mothers. So for, for the cattle folks, think about kicking your first calf heifers out in the pasture to kid or to calf out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, most people are going to have them in closer quarters. So that could put that into a little bit of perspective. 107 kids were born to these 62 does. Two of them were open, uh, and we weaned 93. So there's 14 of them that hit the ground but didn't hop on the truck at the end of the mm-hmm. process. That's not bad. I know that coming from a cattle background, and when I say this to other producers, you know they're used to if they had 50 calves hit the ground, they're expecting 48, 49, mm-hmm. 50. Um, but it's not uncommon at all um, for this to happen. I don't think that it was a predator issue. Like I said, there's two dogs in each of these pastures. So for the three of them combined, there's 360 acres and, and six dogs. They're pretty well protected. I don't think it was a predator issue or I think it would have been worse. Yeah. What I think it was, was just a combination of things happen. Uh, it's it's a real world situation. The young mothers could have left their babies under this oak tree, rejoined mm-hmm. the herd to graze, and then, oh wait, was it this oak tree or that <laughs> oak tree? So I know that some of Mom them- Mom brain is real, right? <laughs> I, I know that some yes. of them just literally lost their kids. Yeah. And then some of them, when they would tell them to stay put and they went and rejoined the herd to graze, Maybe the kids didn't stay put because mm-hmm. all kids listen, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, it's I think it's a combination of, of both of those, and I only found two dead babies. Okay. So what happened to them? I'm not sure. Well, I still think that 150. You said 150 percent. Yeah. Kidding, right? At the end. Weaning. 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 Yeah. Okay. 150 percent weaning. I think that's excellent. It so is. So I think it's very good. That's double. I mean, that's over two per animal. One, one and a half. One and a half. No, yeah. one and a half. I'm bad at doing math <laughs> on the air. <laughs> Cooper, wasn't it like 
78% or like close to 80% of the the weight, the damn weight weaned? Yeah, so that's that's another big thing, the percent of their body weight that they can wean. The the average, like Laura just said, I think it was 78 or 79, but mm-hmm. pushing 80% of their body weight weaned, and that's with 80% of these being first-time mamas. So that's good. Yeah, I so, know, you know, thinking about cattle producers, we hope for 50%. So that's... So there you go. Right. Yeah, we just uh, we just weaned my dad's calves this last weekend, and we had we had one cow that hit fifty five, and we were like, "Ooh, this oh, is good." Yeah, <laughs> I wish that would have been a heifer. Nice oh, it should have been a heifer calf. Yes. We would have kept her. Yeah. So um, there's the difference. There. Yeah. So it's 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 big their efficiency. If I remember the numbers right, the highest performing doe she had triplets, and she weaned all three triplets. And I think that she was about 141% of her body weight weaned. Oh, my gosh. Um, actually, <laughs> no, I do woman. remember now it was 138. Okay. Um, which is crazy. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, Having that many babies. Mm-hmm. And oh keeping track of all yes. of them. Yes. Oh, gosh. I'm sure that there was probably a, a point or two where she would have wished that one of them would have ran <laughs> off. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So Cooper, tell me a little bit about the dogs. Um, you started with some donkeys and they were tokens and went away. Yep. So what we've got out there now, uh, we've got, they're all relatively young. At the time of kidding this year, uh, the oldest ones were just two years old, which is really kind of when their prime would start, but still on the young age. They are Akbosh, which is a relatively new breed uh, brought from Turkey. And then the other ones are an Ogbosch Anatolian Cross. We've got three of those dogs are the two-year-olds. There's a one-year-old, and then there was two six-month-old dogs. So like I said, a really young set of uh, livestock guardian dogs. But I think they performed really well. And like I said in the, in the presentation earlier, they always work better in pairs. And is six dogs necessary to guard 60 goats? No. I would do that with two still, but the way that we have this set up for research purposes, they are three distinct herds. So that that's why we've got so many dogs per goat. These are not pets. Uh, I don't know if you're not familiar with livestock guardian dogs, they li- literally live for their goats. They stay out there with them 365 days a year. Uh, there's a self feeder that they feed themselves with. Uh, there's a little jump gate that they can jump through and the goats can't. They take care of themselves other than a monthly flea and tick and heartworm. They do it themselves. They're the sole protectors. Mm-hmm. Largely. That's cool. I mean, and it goes to show you, you know, you didn't lose. I mean, you don't think you had much predator issue. I would think that many dogs in 320 acres, I would think that that probably covers it pretty well. I yeah, mean, I think that probably keeps it's the a lot of, to a minimum. It's a large exclusionary force with that many dogs on a relatively small amount of acreage they worked hard during kidding they did work hard the the dog food consumption went up big time during kidding yeah so is so tell me about this dog food consumption i think like dogs on dogs on a self-feeder i mean how many pounds of dog food do you go through i mean just like bags and bags and bags on these humongous dogs Mm. these are like 100 100 pound dogs so the the two adult males that we have they are right at 100 pounds so these aren't small dogs but they don't eat near as much as what people would think. Okay. Right now, two dogs are going through about 40 pounds every eight to nine days. Okay. So 
whatever whatever that math is, it's not that much. It's not that much. Um, I think if somebody was hand feeding them, they would eat more. I like using the self feeders because the dog learns that he can self regulate. Evolutionarily, a dog didn't know when his next meal would be, so he would always eat as much as he could. And when you give them the chance to self-regulate, they learn that they don't have to do that. And then they become more efficient with what they do eat. So um, the dogs worked really have worked really well. You would suggest them over any other predator control. Is that correct? In most situations, yes. There's still large portions of Texas that people don't run any livestock guardian dogs because for decades it was an all-out war on coyotes. So the, okay. the, the predator problem wasn't there. Uh, but up here in Oklahoma, that's that's not the situation, and there's almost always going to be some coyotes or some town dogs running around. So 98% of all situations, livestock guarding dogs would be the way to go. Okay. So I know we talked about the economics in the episode before, but let's just do a little rundown on how successful this first year was. Mm-hmm. Um, they did very well, right? Yeah. Like I said earlier, we re- recouped almost 90% of the initial cost that we spent on these animals. We bought 70 does, four bucks, three donkeys, and six livestock guardian dogs. So just one year's kid sales almost paid for all of that. Uh, so the next the next subsequent years, we can start chipping into what it costs to put the fence up and some of the other uh, improvements that we've had to make to to make this work. Your excellent fence that you have. Top <laughs> of is, the line fence. It is a nice wild. fence. <laughs> It is a nice fence. You don't have to have that near that good of a fence to yeah. hold goats. Mm-hmm. But with the situation that we're in, uh, with the research, we, we wanted something that 100%, without a doubt, the goats are staying in inside this. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, over time, you're going to have different people working at those research stations. And yeah. you just really don't want to get a call in the middle of your class, Laura. Yeah. There's yeah. goats out in our cow mm-hmm. pasture. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you want to minimize that yeah. problem. Now we really put up uh, a really nice fence that, if properly maintained, which it better be, we spent a lot of time. <laughs> we spent a lot, a lot of time, spent a lot on, of time on, on that it. thing. Uh, yeah. That's a forty or fifty or more year fence. Yeah. So that means that we should have goats out there for at least forty or fifty more years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luckily, we, so we sold um, we sold the buck kids at um, a sale barn, and and we sold them. What was it? Two ninety nine a pound. Yep. So they went for two ninety nine a pound, and uh, they were averaging sixty two pounds there. That's the, excellent. It is the doe kids. Uh, we sold them the whole group of them uh, for prospective commercial replacements, and they went for two forty a piece. Yeah. So it'll be fun to see how um, this progresses as far as being able to pay off, you know, some of the infrastructure. But if we were going to recommend fencing um, to somebody that was going to try this, that already had you know, was already running cows. Um, there's definitely other options than mm-hmm. the fence that we used um, that you could try. And so, of course, electric fence. Additional strands of barbed wire. Additional, yeah. It works really well. And, and something they talked about today, which I think we should hit on, is you can get away with a less desirable fence, if that's a good way to put it, if you're not overstocking or overcrowding mm-hmm. your animals. Yeah, right. A, a hungry goat is really hard to keep in. One that's not hungry is not so hard to keep in. The way I hold my goats, my personal goats, is we've got five wire barbed wire fence and one hot wire. The bet- hot wire is down bet- Between the bottom hot, the bottom barb and the ground. Okay. And that's all we have to do okay. because we're not we're not overstocked. There's plenty of them for 
for it to eat. And electricity is really, goats respond really well to it. And dogs do too. And so. we're using the the patch burning to move the the goats around the around the pasture, so we don't have to have any additional interior fence. You know, if you were doing some type of rotational grazing system, you, that you might need some type additional fencing. We've we've minimized that by just only having to have the exterior fence for each pasture, um, and let them move around the pasture as they follow the areas that we burn. Um, you know, and then that can eliminate additional costs that you might have. And there's no high stock density um, concerns with, you know, where you might end up having them where they're trying to get through fence and stuff. Yeah. It doesn't happen with the patch burn system. So yeah, so much more simple compared mm-hmm. to all this cross fencing and stuff like that. Of course, you have to deal with fire. But mm-hmm. if you learn, I would think that we could handle that. So we so we do quite a few field days about how to do prescribed burning, especially during the summer, because we just we know we're going to probably be able to burn if it hasn't rained. Um, mm-hmm. So we do those during the summer a lot of times. They're in Stillwater, but other parts of the state too. Um, you know, we have prescribed burn associations across the state that can help with giving you experience burning and helping you actually do a prescribed burn and a burn plan for your property. And so, and then there's an online class all about learning about how to oh yes to do prescribed burns and how to write a burn plan um, that's available on OSU Extension too. So lots of sources out there for helping people get started on that. Yes, excellent resources. And I'll put links to all that um, in the show notes. But I appreciate you guys joining me. This has been an excellent series. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're Thanks welcome. For having well, us. with that, we will catch everyone next time. Bye.